0: Our Old Testament text this morning is Job 19. You may want to follow along. It's on the Pew Bible on page 429. It is Job 19. I'll give you a moment to turn there. This is one of Job's speeches. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then God has put me in the wrong. And closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come together and they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my main servants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were ascribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and be my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, How we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword for the wrath of the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is judgment. The book of Job is really an important book in the Old Testament canon, but it can be very difficult to understand. It may be an understatement. But perhaps it's because there is a lot of difficulty when it comes to applying theology or the wisdom of God to every specific circumstance in our lives. The book of Job centers on Job's suffering, Job an upright man, and the fact that he's suffering generates a dispute between him and these men who are called his friends. They wonder what his suffering means about his relationship with God. This is the dispute that covers the majority of the book. The friends show up and they want to help Job understand his suffering. They want to uphold God's justice in everything he does on earth. They want to uphold God's goodness in everything that happens. And so these friends, as they confront Job, they say many true things about God. But they stumble when it comes to applying this theology to Job himself. For us, it can be a good reminder... That we should not treat the sayings of God and his wisdom as a formula to just be applied. When we suffer, unlike Job's friends, we should not necessarily conclude it's due to some specific unrighteousness. Job helps us manage the dip. We often feel in our own lives a discrepancy between what God has promised... And what he says is true and what we experience and feel. This is the conundrum Job is facing. And so here in chapter 19, Job is responding to one of his friends' speeches, Bildad, who has just argued, God punishes the wicked on earth. And he's done so um, with colorful and descriptive language. And he says, God always snuffs out the wicked. And this is why Job's speech here begins so indignantly. He says they're tormenting him at this point. He feels crushed. It seems, even as we look perhaps at verse 6, it might seem strange for a righteous man to say, God has put me in the wrong. This word wrong in Hebrew is not moral wrongdoing. Um, it's, It's the idea of God has made my life wreckage. I've lost everything I had. And Job worries no one then can help him. Who can help him if this has come from God? And then verses 8 through 22, he really details the extent at which he's experienced loss. He's lost everything that matters, really. He's lost his relationships. His wife is estranged from him. He's lost all honor he's due, his servants, his children, no one cares. And while he's not dead yet, he's as good as dead. He's skin and bones. He's lost his health. But in verses 23 and 24, he states his desire to leave a witness to his suffering. He will not let himself die without a witness. He desires this to be recorded. He does not want his suffering to be unremembered. And in verse 25 he says why. For I know that my Redeemer lives. This is an incredibly surprising statement by Job, who's already said he's lost hope, but here he has hope in something. He has hope in a Redeemer. The term Redeemer is really common throughout the Old Testament. Refers to a number of offices um, by a number of people in the Old Testament. You might think of Boaz. He's the one we think of most readily. God is said to be a redeemer to Israel. Generally, what holds all these ideas of redeemer together is they're the one whose job it is to recover the loss and salvage the dignity of someone who's suffering for some reason. So the question, of course, is who is Job's redeemer? Some suggest Job must be speaking of someone in the future who will take up his case, who will see he was put in the wrong, that it's some person. He's sure someone will show up in the story and take his side. They're uncomfortable with perhaps other suggestions of who this Redeemer might be, but the problem with this idea that the Redeemer will be a family member or someone later, a counselor who will take up his side is is Job has just said he's estranged from everyone. Everyone's against him. Nobody believes him. Everyone thinks he's wrong. In fact, Job's friends, the wise men in the story, are those who are hardest on him. So who in the story then can know Job's suffering is not due to his sin? Well, our English translations do give us a hint, at least who they think the answer is. They capitalize redeemer. Redeemer. If God has put him in the wrong, if God knows Job is not suffering due to his sin, then God can redeem him. Job has suffered this loss, but Job also knows this Redeemer must come down to earth, that he will stand on the earth. Why? Because Job has known in his own experience God has been silent. Job is getting no answer. Job cannot, even with his own wisdom, climb up into heaven to understand his own suffering. This Redeemer will have to stand on the earth. This Redeemer will have to come down to him. And Job has this hope, even if his skin his body, his life is destroyed. God can set even that right. This is the deep wisdom found in Job. That God's ways cannot be discovered and God's ways may not even be revealed in this life, but there is still hope. There is hope God will set all things right. And this hope is in the resurrection. Did Job have the wisdom to know these things could only make sense with the resurrection of the dead and eternal life? I didn't write an answer to this question in my notes. (laughs) I don't know. But we do. We are those who live after God's redemption has dawned in Christ. We see the wisdom of God in Christ and know our Redeemer lives and we shall see Him in our flesh. This is the wisdom of Job. This this is the key to understanding life under the sun. For our New Testament reading, which is our sermon text, it is Revelation 21. Verses 1 through 8, right at the end of your Bible, 1041, if you are looking at the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without repayment. It seems to me we live in a post-fairy-tale world. Modern storytellers seem rarely satisfied with an ending to a book or movie that goes, and they lived happily ever after. People want to know what happened after the hero rode into the sunset. What's the marriage like of the prince and the princess after the wedding? Surely their life is a little more complicated. And these stories, we really need to ground people a little bit more in reality. This stock phrase, happily ever after, is most familiar to us from Disney stories. However, its first use in a fairy tale, in English, goes all the way back to 1702 with a translation of an Italian fairy tale. But the phrase is even much older than that. The first source I could find comes from a commentary on the book of Revelation, which is the source of our sermon text today. In the 1560s, a French Protestant taking refuge in Geneva wrote this, when John had commended the faith sufficiently when he said, the dead which die in the Lord are happy ever after. So, perhaps our problem with happy endings is not that we shouldn't hope for them, but we look for them in the wrong places. We look for a happy ending that comes with marriage, or the right job, or a mended relationship, or a physical healing, or the right answers to difficult questions, or financial independence. And it just seems to me these hopes are set far too low. Because none of these are the end of the story. None of these address the reality all of us must face. Death. Every, at the end of every marriage, whether good or bad, one's spouse is left behind. After every medical recovery, the person eventually succumbs to death. And I think it's things like this that leave us suspicious of hope. We're always going to hedge our bets. We want to be realistic. We don't want to be disappointed because of a childlike view of the world. But this is why we need the writing of John in his revelation. Apocalyptic literature like this shows us God's point of view on the world. We need to be reminded that what we can see is not all there is. There is a deep and complex spiritual world that is even more real than what we can see. And this is what our text does for us today. It teaches us that in spite of what you may see, in spite of what pain you may experience, God is telling a story with a happy ending. A new creation is coming for those with faith in Christ. And they will experience the blessing of communion with Him forever. So for those in Christ, the fairy tales were right. We live happily ever after. So we put our hope and live according to Jesus' saving work because it will stretch to all of creation for all of eternity. Our text in Revelation comes in two parts as many apocalyptic texts do. First, there is a vision full of symbols. Verses one and two indicate their visions when John says, Then I saw, at the beginning of each verse. Then John receives an interpretation of these visions, saying, Then I heard, or it was said to me. Because these visions are meant to help us see God's perspective on the world, they often come with an interpretation like this. And the vision and then the interpretation come to us with one message. And these two parts message today is, a happy ending for God's people. This is the hope we confess at the end of the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We will live happily ever after, and today we will see how God's word describes that ending. So first, we will look at our text and understand what characters in God's story receive this happy ending. John's vision is of the coming new heaven and new earth this glorious reality that awaits us. And the focus, though, of the new heaven and the new earth are the people there, the redeemed saints. You see, he describes in verse 2 what he sees in the new creation. There are many things he could describe, it would seem, but he sees and describes a holy city, the new Jerusalem. He describes the people of God as they will be. They will be the holy city of A new jerusalem prepared like a bride for her husband and so we should first note as we talk about god's people they are only god's people because of his divine initiative the city john sees is coming down from heaven meaning this city is not something man is building up to reach god the people of god are created by him by a sheer act of his grace they're not a people climbing a ladder up to him, climbing a ladder of holiness, but a people God is making. And he calls them a city, a holy city. And he's contrasting them with another city described throughout the book of Revelation, which he calls Babylon. That city is human society opposed to God and his people. And while that city on earth today may look rich and powerful, it may even look like it's triumphing over God's people, Revelation reveals the true end of both of these cities. Babylon to destruction, and God's city in the new heavens and the new earth. John names the city the New Jerusalem. He identifies God's people with Jerusalem, but is clearly distinguishing it from old, earthly Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Because he is not speaking about a city located on the west bank of the Jordan River. He sees a spiritual city. A place filled with God's people who love to be near their God. And God has always had this one heavenly city. That's what he's emphasizing. Even when the people of God had no home, God dwelled with them as they wandered in the tabernacle. And when the temple was built in Jerusalem, it was a powerful testimony to the permanence and security God's people had with him. And now since Christ has come, where do we find God's presence? Where do we find this permanence and this security? It's found in God's people, the church, not one place. Paul says you are the ones being built into the temple. And this vision sees the day when God's construction project of that temple will be complete. In the vision, the city is compared to a bride. God's people are those who are being prepared for an eternity of intimacy with God. We might describe today as we live in the time of God's great wedding planning. We all know how involved and much work preparing a wedding can be. In the ancient world, it was no different. The preparation of a wedding and for the bride... Was involved. They used oil and perfume and all kind of adornment for her wedding gown. Time for preparing a wedding is takes a lot of patience. It comes with a lot of anticipation. But we all know there are lots of stresses as we get ready for that day. This is the time we live in as Christians. We live in the time where God is preparing His people for Christ's return and an eternity with Him afterward. And the message in that time of preparation is not primarily clean up your life. The text does not say the bride worked hard to make herself ready. The text says the bride is the recipient of an action. The verbs are passive. The city is having been prepared as a bride, having been adorned for her husband. Because it is Christ who cleanses and prepares sinners for his return. He does this out of his great love. Paul describes Christ and the way he does this for his church patterned after marriage in those famous wedding verses of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The bride, being ready is not something we are doing. It is something we are receiving. Christ makes his people holy. Christ cleanses you of sin. Christ works and makes you holy by his word. And on that day, on that great day, his work will be finished and his people will be holy and spotless. So what are they being prepared for? Well, the answer, of course, is they are being fit for the new creation. God's people are pictured as those who belong in the new creation. John sees a renewed heavens and a new earth, like Jerusalem, John sees creation as it's meant to be. Christ's redemption will eventually transform everything about the universe. Revelation tells us there's no more night there. It's a different universe because Genesis told us while the earth remained, day and night would not cease. But this is the new earth and these former things have passed away. One detail John points out about the new heavens and the new earth is there is no more sea there. Hmm, what's wrong with the sea? I like beach vacations. Will there be no beaches in heaven? To understand the absence of the sea, you must understand what's happened in the seas in Revelation so far. The sea in the ancient world was a place of chaos and the great unknown. If you were to sail into the sea, you were at the complete mercy of the elements. There was no predicting what would happen next those realities will not exist in heaven. It is a reality of peace. The seas in the Revelation are often called the place of the dead. There'll be no place for death in the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation, the sea is the place where these beasts rise out of who come to threaten God's people. And in heaven, God's people will know no such threat. And the seas literally in John's day were a separation, separating nation from nation. They were a barrier to Christian fellowship. One John knew well as he had this vision on an island exiled from God's people, from the churches he wrote to. There will be no barrier like that in heaven to Christian fellowship. We must recognize though in the vision Not all people who live on earth now will share in the new creation and the life everlasting. Verse 8 makes this clear to us. As it says, but as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God's people as it will be in heaven, is not made up of unrepentant sinners. Sometimes we look at a list like this and think, whew, not me. But this list does not describe good sins good Christians will not be tempted with. He begins the list in an interesting place. He says, the cowardly and the faithless. John originally wrote this letter to persecuted Christians. This is the precise way they would have been tempted. He is describing the potential vices and failures of Christians in his day. If you're a persecuted Christian, the temptation to cowardice or abandoning the faith is great. In fact, this is also why he probably ends his list with saying all liars. He's highlighting those who betrayed their confession of faith through some kind of compromise or embracing false doctrine too will not share in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the warning today. The precise temptations that you face are the exact kind of sins that will keep people out of the new heaven and the new earth. That separate people eternally from God. Perhaps in our day, The precise temptations are not the costs, following Christ, confessing biblical doctrine, persecution, maybe the temptation we face primarily is sexual immorality, or a lifestyle so polluted by the world John says is detestable to God. And of course, everything else, it seems John lists everything that could be opposed to God is included. Murder, sorcery, worshipping another god. Of course, It is not the presence of sin that separates us or God's people from those who will know the second death. What separates them is one of them is forgiven and has been made holy by Christ after they've endured with faith in him. So sinners saved by grace will live happily ever after. They will live the life everlasting. And this is not referring to just an endless existence In fact, those in verse 8, being judged, have an endless existence. Angels and demons have an endless existence. Everlasting life is a state of being. This is the way the Bible actually often uses the terms life and death. God promised Adam and Eve, if they ate of the fruit, in that day they would surely die. And they ate of the fruit, and in that day they did not physically die. But from that day on, Paul describes their condition as dead in their trespasses and sins. Likewise, this is how Christ describes eternal life. In John 5, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Christ says eternal life begins when we hear his word and believe in the God who sent him. Life and death are states of being. You are dead if you are cut off from God, the source of life, and you are alive if you have found new life in Christ. And this life starts now and, as Revelation teaches us, continues forever into eternity. This life will continue in a new creation, a physical creation. It will be a bodily existence. When the Bible describes us as living, it means all that makes us who we are. And so we are promised that in that day, God will transform our lowly bodies to be like the Lord's. Because the only person who has ever lived a fully human life, Jesus Christ, at his resurrection received a glorified body. If Christ teaches us what it means to be truly human, then it means body and soul together. It can sometimes be difficult to understand the importance of the physical body in eternity. But it's clear God's people have always recognized the importance of our body, even after we died. Look at how the early Christians treated Christ's body. Or think about Joseph's request at the end of Genesis that they take his bones back to the promised land. This was part of how Christians recognized the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Maybe it's easier to start from why it would make sense that God's eternal punishment would be bodily. Because sinners sinned against them in their body. So God's just judgment must too be bodily. But Christ's great work of redemption, then, is even greater. It must work in the same way. Christ's great work of redemption must reach our bodies. The glorious life John saw was one of perfect holiness, and we will have bodies to match. We now, in this life, have the internal work of the Spirit renewing us and making us holy. And at the last day, Christ will give us bodies matching that. This is your hope in Christ. This is your inheritance in Christ. All who you are will be redeemed. Christians in this life may be deformed. They may be sick. They may be crippled. They may lose their sight or hearing. You may have allergies. But when Christ comes, none shall be so. Because Jesus Christ will put together your broken body in his image and everything you lost in this life will be surpassed by the treasure you find in Christ. And so in that day, no Christian will ever call or ride in an ambulance again. In that day, Christian soldiers will find a new vocation, one of peace. Christian elders will trade the work of disciplining straying sheep with offering praise to their shepherd. Faithful deacons will stop stepping in to the endless needs of God's people and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Perhaps mothers in that day, if you can imagine it, will hear no more crying. But most importantly, all of this life will be with our God. This is why we can say we will live happily ever after. This is what eternal life is. Again, Jesus tells us what eternal life is in John seventeen three. He says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, Jesus does not describe eternal life as an amount of time. It's a kind of life. It's knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the God who sent him. The vision of heaven describes eternal life the same way. Fellowship with God. Behold, I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be to them as their God. This is the promise woven throughout all of the scriptures, and its ending is here. This text, that God's dwelling, or it literally says, his tabernacle will be made with man. Of course, that reminds us, of God's dwelling in the tabernacle and in the temple. The prophets looked forward to the day when that would be a permanent sanctuary. God said to have made his tabernacle among us in Christ. And now church, the church, we are that temple where God dwells. But surpassing all of that is how he will be with us in the new heavens and the new earth. Because then that promise will be fully and ultimately realized. In that day we will be able to say, He is our God and we are his people forevermore. This is the reason you have a Bible. So that you can know how God will be a God to you. How God in Christ will be a God to sinful people like us. And in that day we will know totally pure and devoted love of God and have no impediment to our fellowship with him. Fellowship with God is what makes heaven, heaven. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He is the one who will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will be there, and that is why there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, and this day has not yet arrived. But this life, this eternal life, has started for all who trust in Christ, and we now live in hope of this day. This hope mattered profoundly to persecuted Christians in John's day. There was a rest coming for them despite their trials. There is a rest coming for you despite your trials. Daniel Nairi expressed this hope well in his autobiography called Everything Sad is Untrue. It's a bittersweet story of his life as a refugee in America from Iran. About halfway through, you come to learn why he was separated from the country he loves, the family he loves, the culture he loved. It's because his mother became a Christian. In Iran, they were a wealthy family with deep roots. They had a family estate. His mother had a respected medical practice. And let me read his account of why his mother would trade her family and her life in the country for what she knew would be a difficult life of a refugee. He says, it's true and more valuable than $7 million in gold coins, thousands of acres of Persian countryside, tens of years of education to get a medical degree, more than all your family and a home, the best cream puffs in Jolfa, and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there's a God and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else, because heaven's waiting on the other side. That, or Sema, his mother's name, is insane. There is no middle, you can't say it's quirky, and that she thinks about it sometimes, because she went all in with it. If it's not true, she's made a giant mistake, but she doesn't think so. She had all the wealth, the love of the people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. Now she's poor. People spit on her at buses. She's a refugee in a place where people hate refugees with a husband who hits her harder than a second degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. And she will tell you, it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. End quote. This is what it looks like to begin to live eternal life now. To live a life of confidence that despite whatever pain or trouble you have, however poor or insane you may seem to others, Jesus Christ is worth it. Because... I have no promise for you that everything will work out in this life. Faithfulness to Christ may cost you dearly, and in our world of sin there will be no end of pain and suffering. The promise is for those who know Christ, whatever we suffer in this life, heaven waits on the other side of it. Let me consider one more question people often have about heaven before we close. Will we ever get bored? There have been many, actually, who have thought in history an endless future actually sounds horrifying. They think it's a terrifying reality to think about human life somehow being able to be worthwhile forever. But the question, actually, is more appropriately asked. If Jesus says knowing him is eternal life, the question is, will that ever get boring? God himself has existed eternally happy in his loving life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, the infinite, all-powerful God, has never tired of this life. And our invitation is a permanent participation into God's very life, the true heart of satisfaction, the triune life itself. If this is enough, for unending joy for God then it is enough for you. Ever after. At the end of the story, sinners saved by grace will live with God ever after. The story God is telling has an ending. God, the great author, will one day be able to announce, it is done. He will finish making all things new. He has started this work now. He is making sinners new creations in Christ. He is building the temple of his church and he will eventually finish the transformation of all things in heaven and on earth. I believe there is a happy ending that begins and ends with Jesus, the one who gives water to the thirsty without payment. Let me quote one more author. The Russian author Dostoevsky stated his belief in the life everlasting this way. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human life will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will happen that it will suffice for all hearts. For the comforting of all resentments. For the atonement of all the crimes of humanity. For all the blood they've shed, that it will not only make it possible to forgive, but to justify everything that has happened. This is not wishful thinking. This is the ending to God's story, and it will justify everything that has happened. The question for you is do you believe God can redeem everything that has happened? If you have this hope, proclaim it in all you do. Because this is the hope our post tale world needs. Because most of us today do not have the hope of SEMA, a destitute refugee found in Christ. I don't know the troubles you've seen, but I know that at the end of the story it will justify everything that has happened. This is our faith. This is what Christ demonstrated, our Savior, the one on a cross, beaten, naked, and ashamed, who there announced, it is finished. On that day, he finished atoning for sin. And one day, he will come again and receive all glory and honor from sinners saved by grace and announce, it is done, and we will live with him happily ever after. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Alpha and Omega. You are the God of the prophets, the one coming soon. And we cry with the spirit of the bride, come, Lord Jesus. I pray that everyone in the hearing of my voice will receive your testimony, be washed by your word, and made new. Let all of us never lose hope. All this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.